You're listening to Decisive Point. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today, I'm chatting with Captain Gustavo Ferreira and Major Jamie Critelli, authors of Taiwan's Food Resiliency, or Not, in a Conflict with China. Ferreira is a senior agricultural economist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and serves as an agricultural officer at the 353 Civil Affairs Command, U.S. Army Reserves. Critelli, U.S. Army Reserves, is a civil affairs officer serving as an agricultural officer in the 353 Civil Affairs Command. He's a seasonal farm business owner and has worked globally in agriculture on five continents. Welcome back to Decisive Point, gentlemen. Thank you for having us here, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Happy to be here. Your article, it focuses on Taiwan's food resiliency. Please give us an overview of Taiwan's agricultural sector. I would like to start by emphasizing how recent supply chain disruptions Crop failures in some key producing countries, as well as the war in Ukraine, have pushed global food prices to record high levels and also reminded many countries about the risks associated with the dependency on food imports to feed their populations. In the case of Taiwan, as this country industrialized its economy and developed key manufacturing sectors such as the semiconductor sector, its agriculture production had been declining for decades. As a result, Taiwan's ability to feed itself has decreased and food imports now cover about two-thirds of its annual caloric intake. What's problematic with this is that, contrary to what we've seen in Ukraine, the United States and other NATO allies are being able to supply Ukraine with massive amounts of supplies through a vast share land border. A similar effort would not be possible to Taiwan because A, Taiwan being an island, and B, China's Liberation Army, Navy, and Rocket Force have now the capabilities of denying freedom of movement to any adversary naval force in the air. In the context of a conflict with China, it will be extremely difficult and risky for cargo ships and airlift to reach Taiwan. Another challenge will be the fact that China will likely attempt to capture major operational ports to use them to dock their own merchant civilian ships to supply its invasion of Taiwan. As a response, the Taiwanese military will almost certainly try to deny China's access to these ports via obstacles such as sea mines or sunken ships. With all main ports no longer operational, we believe the United States and its allies will struggle to transport and unload critical food supplies to Taiwan. Nevertheless, it's uh, important to note that Taiwanese authorities are well aware of these vulnerabilities and the buildup of public food stocks have been a central component of the country's food resiliency strategy. And I'll give you an example. During the COVID-19 crisis, the Taiwanese government assured the population that the nation had enough food and agriculture commodity stocks to handle disruptions in agriculture trade for six months. That was their promise. Our own analysis also shows that Taiwan had enough food reserves to feed its population for about six months. After that, the island will have to import food products to meet its nutritional needs. In the event of a naval blockade enforced by China, which food products should be prioritized in early stock buildup efforts or resupply operations based on Taiwan's nutritional needs and domestic food production? Taiwan, population 23 million, is actually the 16th largest food importing country in the world. As you heard from Gus, it's heavily reliant upon food imports to meet its needs. And certainly any naval blockade will disrupt these flows. Food products must be prioritized in any efforts to build up stockages pre-conflict and should be included in U.S. and allied resupply operations during a conflict. Specific food products we consider are prioritized based upon two factors. First, 
is widespread consumption of the food product already by the Taiwanese population, so we know that they eat it. And number two, a large volume of Taiwan imports due to the inability of domestic production to meet the demand nationally. When we look at the food that the Taiwanese are eating, about 50% of the calories come from grains. A large chunk of this is covered by domestic rice production, so we can exclude that. But wheat, corn, and soy are almost completely imported to meet the needs because there is no domestic production. In fact, the imports of wheat, corn, and soy amount to some 9 million metric tons annually. Wheat is used for them to produce flour, while corn and soy are almost exclusively used as livestock feed, predominantly for poultry and hogs. Next up on the list would be animal protein. 50 years ago, the average Taiwanese citizen derived 75% of their protein needs from plant sources and 25% from animal sources. The new mix is now nearly 50-50. A third of this animal protein comes from fish. The grains that I mentioned earlier are used to feed poultry and hogs. There is barely a domestic beef sector in Taiwan, so all beef is imported. With fish, however, the coastal and deep sea fishing industries provide it, but in the event of any naval action, these industries will be limited as well. So to produce fish, it will need to move onto shore into aquaculture facilities. Both fish and chicken are remarkable at transforming the rations into protein and should be prioritized in production to reduce the grain import needed to provide protein source to the population in the first place. Finally, while it isn't a food stuff, do not forget about chemical inputs. These would include fertilizers and pesticides needed to grow plants, as well as any chemical inputs and antibiotics needed for increased level of dry land aquaculture. Despite whether the country needs to transition to a higher level of domestic production or it needs to start eating lower on the food pyramid due to a naval embargo, it will still need the means of sustaining itself with increased domestic agriculture. What logistical assets would be required to strengthen Taiwan's food resiliency? In this study, we developed three scenarios that assess the ability of Taiwan's food system to endure a partial or a total Chinese naval blockade. These scenarios are not intended to be exhaustive. We started with scenario number one, which assumes that China effectively denies U.S. and ally food resupply operations. So in other words, Taiwan becomes completely cut off from the rest of the world. Under this scenario, Taiwan will not be able to get external assistance. It will need to have sufficient food supplies at hand right at the beginning of the conflict. This is because while the current food stocks levels may sustain Taiwan for six months, they will be insufficient in the event of, of a much more prolonged naval blockade. And let's not forget, and it has been a year and two months since Russia invaded Ukraine. So nothing is certain about how long any military operation will last. So Taiwan will be better off being prepared for a longer term scenario. To do so, we propose two particular strategies. The first one is to increase its food reserve levels. And the second one is to increase its domestic food production. But we got to say that, unfortunately, these two options also come with their own challenges and limitations. And we'll cover those in a minute. Starting with the first one, increasing food reserve levels. For that, Taiwan will have to make major investments in storage capacity and strengthen its strategic stockpiles of key materials to include foodstuff. The problem here is the large storage facilities, and you can think of grain silos, or cold storage warehouses, they're also very vulnerable targets. Therefore, you know, Taiwan's military will have to, at the same time, if they build this infrastructure, they will also have to think about developing protective systems to defend this critical infrastructure from either kinetic or cyber attacks. 
The second option, which will be to increase domestic food production in order to make Taiwan more resilient, will come with also some problems. So first, in order to boost more traditional agricultural production, that will take time and it will require significant changes on the country's rather antiquated agricultural system. The other thing is the island will be also capped by its limited farmland and agricultural labor. So if you want to go the traditional route, there are those limitations. We propose to circumvent those constraints that Taiwanese authorities consider two options. The first is to develop a victory garden program. Back in World War One and World War Two, the U.S. developed this program. And just as an example, by the end of 1944, about 20 million victory gardens in the United States accounted for a large shares of the country's total annual fruits and vegetable production. So they were instrumental on maintaining food security during a major conflict. The second strategy will be well poised for a country that is so densely populated as Taiwan. And this will be the use of hydroponics, which will allow many households to produce leafy greens within their own houses. There are some issues here too. Hydroponic vegetable production has a steep learning curve and also requires considerable upfront investments. While these new supplies will be dispersed throughout the country and therefore more resilient to Chinese attack, they also only partially mitigate the problem. And this is because they will produce food categories in where Taiwan is already highly sufficient, and that's vegetables, fruits, and roots. Nevertheless, it will provide some relief to the population, at least at the short, of the short run. The second scenario contemplates the United States and its allies anticipating that they can sustain limited resupply operations to Taiwan, even within the context of a Chinese naval embargo. And the rationale for this, we think in the lines of what's happening currently at the Black Sea and Ukraine and Russia. So Ukraine and Russia agree on the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which has kept critical grain corridors open to international buyers. We think that China could also allow limit maritime traffic to bring essential food products to Taiwan in order to avoid a major humanitarian crisis. So under this scenario, however, it's unclear whether commercial shipping companies will be willing to operate in that region. And that's due to the elevated risk and high operational costs. Think about really prohibited insurance rates and even the difficulty of obtaining things such as shipping letters of credit. In that case, the U.S. and allied navies may need to ensure the arrival of critical food supplies to Taiwan using their own logistical assets, which raises another question is whether the U.S. military and the allies can replace those commercial operations. And this is because this will include all different classes of shipping vessels to bring bulk cargo and containers and ranging from small vessels to very large ones. So think about what it would take to bring the volume of soybeans imported by Taiwan in 2021, which amounts to 2.6 million metric tons. So that will require about 47 Panamax-sized vessels. This is the largest ship that can cross the locks of the Panama Canal. Because of such large import volumes, that also will rule out completely a Berlin airlift type of operation, especially if China contests the airspace surrounding Taiwan. It's still under this scenario, other logistical considerations include that most agricultural imports arrive to Taiwan through four main ports. So it will be essential for those ports to stay operational and even to expand their capacities to sustain food supplier operations. 
Another issue is that about 90% of agriculture imports that right to Taiwan come through sea routes. And out of that, 85% comes through shipping containers. So why is this important? Taiwan's heavy reliance on shipping container is a vulnerability because China is the world's top producer and exporter of shipping containers. The recent supply chain disruptions during COVID highlighted that issue. The last scenario looks at the situation where the United States and allies foresee an impending Chinese naval blockade and begin to quickly coordinate food resupply operations before the blockade is in force. In this situation, it will involve the United States first anticipating the imminent invasion of the naval blockade, and then we'll have a limited window of opportunity to start resupply operations and try to bring as many food stuff as possible before maritime traffic to the islands completely disrupted. Because time is essential, it will be challenged for allies to contract and mobilize the additional civilian maritime and military maritime transportation assets that can quickly bring the additional food supplies before the conflict begins. Also, in that situation, like Major Critelli mentioned, United States and allies will have to prioritize transportation of certain food products. Those should be upfront in those operations before that window is closed. Finally, on the receiving end, Taiwan will need to have sufficient infrastructure and the supply chain channels to receive, absorb, store, and distribute the sudden spike in imports of such large volumes of food commodities. Otherwise, what might happen is that the food products make it to the island, but they end up getting spoiled or go to waste due to waiting longer periods at the shore or improper handling or inadequate storage capacity. What conclusions can we draw from this? The global focus at the moment is on Ukraine and the Black Sea Grain Initiative and the relative food insecurity of several countries around the world appearing as a result. But we can also draw lessons from that conflict that would apply to a potential conflict involving Taiwan. Ukraine is a major global food exporter, so the bulk of impacts are felt outside of Ukraine. Taiwan, as a major food importer, will feel the impacts inside the country. Taiwan focused on economic development instead of focusing on egg development. So the global impacts we will feel in the event of a Taiwan embargo would be felt downstream. Globally, they would be felt within the supply chains of semiconductors, for example, and other items. And there would be third order impacts appearing elsewhere that we haven't even thought about. As Gustavo mentioned, Taiwan is very different from Ukraine due to its geography. So in many cases, the response in the event of a conflict must be very different as well. We must consider novel approaches to ensuring Taiwan can meet its nutritional needs over a long time horizon. We must look at Taiwan's strengths and weaknesses and see how we can pivot a weakness into an opportunity to meet their needs based on what they already do well. We therefore propose more aquaculture and hydroponics and more of a closed loop production network with local production as much as possible. We can reduce the impact of an invasion by drastically reducing dependency on imports. We must do everything we can to prevent a conflict from happening in the first place. A war in this part of the world involving the countries who could be parties to it would be absolutely catastrophic. NATO doesn't exist in the Pacific. We need to pursue a diplomatic approach with a group of nations to best position Taiwan to prevent or to speedily de-escalate emerging conflict. As we got deeper in our research, it became really clear that U.S. and allied efforts to break the blockade will very likely be unsuccessful or difficult at best. And it's a matter of China could endure the consequences of a prolonged confrontation much better than Taiwan could. 
And going back to what Major Patel said, the time to prepare is now in order to increase that resiliency to the island. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me today. Thank you, Stephanie, for giving us the opportunity to talk about our paper. Thank you for having us, Stephanie. Listeners, you can read the article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 53, Issue 2. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 